how fast this series is going, um, but it's moving, and we're in the home stretch now. And uh, thank you for just the attention and the eagerness to learn. It seems like, just as I think just what God's doing in my life and the people I've talked to, it seems like God is really using this series to surgically get at some things that maybe we've neglected or not thought about for a while. God's, God's putting his finger on us by his spirit, and it hurts a little bit, but we're thankful. Uh, the thing that I think more than anything God might be trying to get our attention on relates to the theme verse that we've been looking at week after week after week in this book of Judges, that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I know that in you and I know that in me there is some of that wanting to do what's right in my eyes. Here's what I want. Here's what I think. Here's what I want to do. And God is trying to surgically remove that attitude and that spirit from our hearts. And so what we have in the book of Judges is a series of stories about how uh, people, uh, really you see a downward cycle, but, but in each downward cycle, what you see are these stories of these judges, these people that God uses who are remarkably flawed. A judge is not quite a king, not quite a military commander, but, but a leader, a judge uh, who will help lead Israel into a place of, of hopefully better health. And yet what we see is that time after time after time, even though God is gracious, even though God uses these flawed people, they're increasingly, the people of Israel are not faithful to him. But we've been looking at these judges. And just so you kind of understand it, the nation of Israel at this point isn't a very tight nation. It's more of a, it's more of a commonwealth. Or think about it maybe like the 13 American colonies, right? You had these 13 colonies and they were connected, but they weren't, there wasn't a federal government yet. There wasn't that kind of thing. And that's sort of how it is in these days. And so we looked at a, a number of early judges. We looked at Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Barak and that whole thing. And then last week we turned into Gideon. And this week we look at Jephthah. Next week we look at Samson. And the first three, there's not a lot of details and information about their lives. These last three, we get a lot of details. And we see that there's remarkable strength and devastating sin and weakness. So today we're looking at this story that I'm guessing many of you have not heard, and, and that's okay. Um, it's maybe a new show to you, if you will. And uh, it's about this guy, Jephthah, and God using him. And so let me just ask you, put your hand up. Anyone ever binge watch a TV show? You ever been? Yeah. Yeah, more over here than over here, it looks like. But, but on Netflix or, you know, you get the DVDs or Amazon Prime or, you know, whatever. You just save them up on your DVR, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's incredible to just binge watch. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to binge watch the story of Jephthah. There are basically five episodes in this, in this series, uh, this, uh, this TV show called The Outcast. That's the name of our show today, The Outcast. And there's five episodes in, in the, the series, The Outcast, all right? The first one we see in uh, chapter 10, verses 6 to 16, and this episode is titled, When God Has Had Enough. When God Has Had Enough. Look at it, chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that we've seen over and over and over in this book. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet this time, the author of Judges goes into much more detail than he's gone up to this point. Here's what he says. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and notice all the gods they serve, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
This level of detail is meant to heighten our sense of, wow, they have really dove headfirst into this idolatry. Right? This isn't just a general, you know, what, what, what do they do? Oh, idolatry. This is, they serve this God and this God and this God and this God and this God. A few of these gods they've actually already served before. And it's already led them into being oppressed by those nations. And they've already been rescued from it, and now they're back. Like a dog returns to its vomit. The nation of Israel keeps going after these other gods. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. We've seen this uh, pattern as well. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So this is a pattern we've seen before. They sin. God says, all right, if that's what you want, here you go. And he invites a foreign oppressor. And then what do they always do next? What have we seen? They cry out. They go, God, help. Verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Baals, by the way, that's just another word for gods. We've served these other gods. We've, we've forsaken you and we've served these other gods. Help us. Deliver us. Rescue us. Here's God's response. Verse 11. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Whoa. Right? The, the, the cycle, the sin is even worse. They're going back to these things they've, ever, they've already you know, been delivered from. God says, all right, you're going to be oppressed. They go, no, no, help. And God says, listen, Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. You say sorry just for show. And baby, now we got bad blood. We got a really big problem, and I don't think we can solve it, because baby, now we got bad blood. <laughs> Woo. All right, God gets all Taylor Swift on them, and it's like, I don't think so. No, we, no, you ain't. This is an amazing response of God, isn't it? Because what's God done up to this point every time? Help, okay, help, okay, help, okay. And now help, no, uh-uh, I don't think so. Why? Well, it seems that God is just sick with their sort of cheap repentance. God's going, you're not really repenting, you're not really changing, I already delivered you from the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines, you went back to them. No, let, you want those gods, that's what, you, that's what your heart keeps going after. You want it, you got it, take them. Cry out to them. See if they will help you. And amazingly, this seems to actually lead the people towards real repentance. It says in verse 15, 
And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Notice, that's the first time that they've said that. Every other time they say, God, this hurts. God, I don't like this. God, this circumstance is tough. Here they say, God, we've sinned. They own it. And then here's an evidence, I think, that they own it. Do to us whatever seems good to you. You know that that's a mark of true repentance, don't you? When you realize, God, I've blown it, and God, I know there are going to be consequences, and I know I'm not in charge of them, and you're God, I'm not. Do what you want. If you come to God with conditions, God, I'm sorry, but, but I really need you to do, you're not really repenting. Real repentance says, God, it's in your hands. I trust you. You're God. I'm not. Whatever seems best to you. That's what they do. It says, verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. What an interesting phrase there, God being impatient over their misery. God sees their misery. And even though God is fed up with their cheap and their light and their not very deep or real repentance, God still is impatient over the misery of his people and he's gracious. So that's episode one, when God's had enough. Episode two is called Crime Boss to the Rescue. Crime Boss to the Rescue. The end of chapter 10, the Ammonites are uh, attacking the people of Israel. Uh, they're called to arms and, and uh, they, they uh, go, hey, there's, we're going to fight. Here we go. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, that's a particular one of these sort of colonies, if you will, says, hey, who's going to save us? And in chapter 11, verse 1, we're introduced to Jephthah. Jephthah, we're told, was a mighty warrior, verse 1, but he was the son of a prostitute. That's an interesting thing. That's why we've called this series The Outcast. When I say series, I mean today. Today's little TV series. It's The Outcast. Jephthah's The Outcast. He's mighty, he's strong, but he's the son of a prostitute. And what we find out is that he had these two other brothers uh, that were uh, the, the, the sons of Jephthah's dad and wife, right? He's the, the, the outcast. He's the son of dad and prostitute. And the two full-blooded brothers say, hey, Jephthah, you're out of here. We, you're not part of this family. You don't have any inheritance here. Go away. And it says in verse 3, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So he heads out. He's out in the wilderness. And it's a great phrase there, worthless fellows gathered around him. Do you know what that means? Jephthah's in organized crime. And he's got some muscle around him. And you're going to see, actually, the reason they come to him is because he's so strong and because he has so much power and influence and grit. Uh, he's a survivor, you know, that kind of a thing. It was funny, when we were talking about this in our preaching collective, we have, a, we have a gathering with all the teaching pastors from all of Redemption where once a week we get together and we talk about what we're preaching about in a few weeks. And a few weeks ago when we were talking about this and we were talking about kind of that, that organized crime element, these worthless fellows collecting around him, uh, Paul Artino, who's very Italian, he's from Gilbert, he said, oh, this is like the Godfather. And then Chris Amaro, who leads our West Mesa congregation, and he's, he's uh, Hispanic, he said, no, this is like the cartel. <laughs> and uh, Ricardo Stewart, who leads Redemption Tempe, he's African-American from Southern California, he goes, no, man, Jephthah's a gang leader. So I'm thinking like, okay, I'm white, <laughs> I'm suburban. <laughs> Jephthah's the HOA president. 
That's what he is. I mean, I just, I felt so left out, I had to get in on it, you know? No offense to those of you who fill that role. It's just you're among people that don't like you. Um, so, so Jephthah's out there, and he's the survivor. He's this outcast. And because of that, the, the leaders of Gilead, they come to him, and they go, hey, we don't have anyone to lead us. We don't have anyone to help us. Uh, would, you, would you come? Would you, be our, would you lead us into battle? And Jephthah, you see here, is just this remarkable negotiator. He goes, seriously? Now you're coming to me? You already rejected me. You already said you didn't want me. You already said you didn't, you know, go save yourself. It's actually a very interesting parallel actually, between the way the people of Israel treat God and the way the leaders of Gilead treat Jephthah, right? They don't want anything to do with them, but now they're in trouble. Oh, wait, wait, we need your help. And they come to Jephthah. Jephthah says, no, I'm not helping you. And they say, okay, well, if, if, uh, if you help us, then if you win, you'll get to be the leader of everything. And he goes, well, I'm, I kind of like that. That sounds pretty good. And uh, verse 10 uh, they make this uh, kind of agreement before the Lord. The Lord is going to be witness between them, that sort of a thing. And uh, they have this agreement that the crime boss is coming to the rescue. That's Jephthah. Then we get to episode three. Episode three is the negotiation. So now Jephthah's in charge. Jephthah is uh, going to lead this military campaign. And the first thing he does before uh, the military campaign begins and the fight is he's going to negotiate. And so he negotiates with the king of the Ammonites. And uh, there's this whole dispute about, well, who, who really battled and who fought us and whose land is this? It's interesting, actually, if you read Judges 10, uh, all of these questions about who the land of Palestine belongs to, they're not new. And Jephthah, without getting into all the weeds and all the details of it, Jephthah gives historical reasons. Jephthah gives the theological reasons. Jephthah has some sort of awareness that God has promised this land to his people and that the people who were there uh, committed all kinds of injustice, that uh, Israel then was right to be able to take it. But they have this whole negotiation. Maybe they can figure it out diplomatically. They go back and forth, but in the end, they just can't do it. It says in verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Which leads us to episode four. Your wrong view of God can hurt you. Your wrong view of God can hurt you. We're going to slow down and look at this episode a bit more in depth because this is where it's all really starting to heat up. Jephthah's been appointed. The diplomacy hasn't worked. The battle's about to start. Verse 29 of chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter 11, my fault. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on the Ammonites. So the spirit of God comes on to Jephthah and allows him to have military success. He moves through all these different areas and finally gets up to the place of battle. God has blessed him up to that point. God has called him to do this. And it says in verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, some of you, if you have a paper Bible in your hand, in verse uh, 30 there, or I'm sorry, verse 31, where it says, whatever comes out from the doors of my house, there's probably a little footnote there. 
And if you were to look in the bottom of your Bible where the translators uh, put a footnote, what they put, in the ESV at least, is that this could be whatever or whoever. So Jephthah is saying, God, listen, I got a deal to make with you. If you grant me success against the Ammonites, then whatever or whoever comes out the door to meet me, I'm going to offer them up to you as a whole burnt offering. What? What? Human sacrifice is a practice of the pagans. Human sacrifice is a practice of the, the, the Baal worshipers and these Canaanites that surround them. This isn't a practice that, that Yahweh, the one true God, accepts or wants or delights in. But what you don't know about God, what your wrong view of God is, can hurt you. And as readers, we already sense the irony and the heartache and the pain that's about to come. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. It's interesting, all our other descriptions of the battles have been so much longer, so much more descriptive. But here it's like Jephthah's vow has overshadowed the battle. And it says in verse 34, Then Jephthah came home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on our enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down in the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. And so her and her friends, they go up on a kind of mountain retreat of sorts, and they grieve and they lament. They're not going to have any offspring. They're not going to live on. She's not going to live on past this. She's gotten the death sentence from her father. It says in verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Wow. Your wrong view of God can hurt you. Why would Jephthah make a vow like this? Because he thinks God can be one with bribes and with heroism and with big offers of sacrifice. Look how much I'm willing to do for you, God. I will sacrifice whoever comes out that door. Who did he think it would be? And then you think, why would he go through with it? Once it was his daughter, and he's clearly grieved, and he's going, oh my gosh, I can't, I, I, this is, I can't do this. But he does it anyway. He goes, listen, I've made a vow to Yahweh. I, yeah, well, Yahweh would hate that vow. 
Leviticus tells us that God hates child sacrifice. It's one of the most detestable things of the Old Testament. It's one of the main reasons that the people of Israel were justified in going out and in wiping out the Canaanites because they practiced things as detestable as that. Why does he go, why does he make the vow? Why does he go through with the vow? Because he doesn't understand who God is. He thinks God can be impressed by his big efforts and his big works. He thinks that God is the kind of God who can't and doesn't give grace. And so he does it. Tragic, tragic story. Well, episode five, I've called children, children. Because what it's about is the men of Ephraim, uh, who's another uh, Israelite uh, kind of uh, colony, if you will, they're coming to Jephthah and they say, hey, you didn't help, you didn't ask us to be part of the battle very much. And Jephthah says, no, I did, but you didn't come to help. And so they, you know, they start having this sibling spat, right? That's why I call it children, children, right? They just, but all the, the ego and the pride and the anger and it just infuses and it's just uh, all over the place. And it says at the end of chapter 12, verse 6, that Jephthah and his men killed 42,000 Ephraimites. It's one thing to wipe out the godless Canaanites. It's another thing now to wipe out your own Israelite brothers. It says in verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileite died and was buried in his city in Gilead, and if you've been with us, you know that the end of each cycle is supposed to say, and the land had rest. But there is no rest in the land. Because God has had enough. And a crime boss comes and tries to negotiate, not just with the other king, but negotiate with the one true king, with God. Say, God, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's how I'm going to bribe you. Here's how I'm going to win you over. Does something detestable. And then follows it by killing his brothers, this huge civil war in Israel, this downward spiral just gets worse and worse and worse. What are we supposed to learn from this? I think there are two things that I want to focus on here today from this story that I think have some application and some relevance into our lives today. You could talk about all the just the ways that this sort of Ignorance is grieving and all the different uh, things about how the people of Israel don't get along. But I I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on these two things, these two questions, really. Here's the first one. Do you see God as the Holy One of Israel or the cool parent? Do you see God as the Holy One of Israel Holy, righteous, just, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty. That's the Holy One of Israel. Is that how you see God? Or do you see God as the cool parent? You know the cool parent. Some of you had a parent that tried to be cool. Some of you had friends whose parents tried to be cool. Some of you have been and some of you are the cool parent. The parent who wants to not just be an authority over their kids, but a friend who want to fit in. Hey, you know what? If they're going to drink anyway, they might as well drink at our house under our supervision. That's the cool parent. That's stupid. 
Is that how you see God, though? Because what you see in this story are people that don't see God as the Holy One of Israel. They see God as the cool parent that can be manipulated and worked. Right? That, isn't that how Israel saw him at the beginning of the story? When they cry out, oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. Right? They just feel like, you know what? We don't really even need to be that sorry. We don't need to do that much. We just, let's just say the words. I pray the prayer. Well, God, you've you got to do I mean, you're, you're, you're merciful and you forgive. And, you know, you can't out God's grace. God, hey, I, I blew it. I'm sorry. And they expect the cool parent response. Oh, it's okay. What they get is the Holy One of Israel response. No. No. I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to let you go through this phony, cheap, shallow repentance again. No. I'm not your buddy, God. I'm your God, God. I'm your king. And you can't buy me off with your little cheap shows of, I'm so sorry. How often do we try to do that to God? How often have we gone to the Lord over and over and over, asking forgiveness for the same sin and the same sin and the same sin? And by the way, God's grace is so big and God's steadfast love is so vast that we can go to God time after time after time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We can keep going every time, but how often do we just get so comfortable with our sin? How often do we just so make peace with it and go, well, that's just who I am. That's just my cross to bear. We get spiritual. That's just my thorn in the flesh. We even get upset, well, well, God, you, you know, this person had this deliverance moment, right? Like, I've heard.